As we step into a time of devotion and uh, looking at the scriptures, let me just read to you a verse from Psalm 2 and 3. Uh, Psalm 26. Uh, just my heart for the morning. Test me, O Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and mind, for your love is ever before me, and I walk continually in your truth. It's my prayer for us, God, that you would test us, that you would shape us and cut things off that don't need to be there. Examine us, for your loving kindness is ever before our eyes as we learn to walk in accordance with your faithfulness. You've been teaching people through your word for thousands of years, so here we are again today just looking for you for direction and discernment. We want to know you more. There's power in that. We thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Amen. Please turn to Luke chapter 10, and as you do, I will share some thoughts about life uh, in that time, Luke chapter 10, uh, if this is your first Sunday here at Crossroads or you don't know anything about the Bible, there was a man who was a physician who was radically impacted by the story of Jesus. And he was one of the first people who believed that Jesus was the Son of God and the Savior of the world. He spent a season of his life going around interviewing eyewitnesses to make an orderly account to pass on a biography of Jesus. His name is Luke. We call his letter Luke. We probably should call it Jesus. But there's four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament, and so we can't just say uh, Malachi, Jesus, 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 Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians. So we name them after the people that wrote them, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the breath of God is on these words, which makes it all the more exciting and challenging for us to study. Most of what Luke brings to the table is from the last three or so years of Jesus' life, which we know as him doing ministry. Most of Jesus' ministry was done by imparting his uh, lordship and empowering presence into a group of people. We call that discipleship. In his day, he would be called a rabbi. It's significant because he discipled people like you and me. A couple fishermen, some stone workers, a sellout tax collector, and two terrorists. Who are you hanging out with? My mom didn't want me hanging out with someone that smoked cigarettes in high school. Um, not to mention a few women who also numbered themselves as part of the followers of Jesus. This is significant because in this culture that Jesus was in, there's a major difference between our culture nowadays. They actually believed that by rebelling against God and disobeying God, you could have a, would have a profoundly negative experience, uh, would profoundly impact negatively the society and the culture that they lived in. I know, crazy, Right? Well, they had a good reason to believe that because their nation had been sent into exile before for rebelling against God. So anyone who was designated to shepherd and share the scriptures with people and share the ways of God with people was highly celebrated and honored. A rabbi disciple were, were very celebrated in this culture. Even to the point where at times they were regarded as getting as much honor as a priest. 
what was a rabbi teaching? How to walk in accordance with God's ways. So everyone would be affected by this. Now, they wouldn't take a wage for teaching the Torah, so maybe they had a trade, but depending on the size of the village, they wouldn't have uh, set up shop because they might take away from other business in the village, so they would largely rely on hospitality to support their needs. Depending on how many disciples a rabbi had, this would be easier or more difficult. I mean, at the beginning of, back in chapter 9, there's 5,000 people following Jesus. <laughs> no wonder they didn't have any food, okay? That's what I'm saying. He had to provide food for everybody. At the beginning of chapter 10, there's 70 people following Jesus. Usually, there's at least 12 people following Jesus. I rarely have 13 people in my home. I can't really imagine how difficult it would be to be hospitable to this group of people. Just why Jesus is being invited to banquets all the time. Just why there's large crowds in homes and people are being lowered in by the ceiling. You start to get the picture. Uh, a rabbi that lived long before Jesus, Rabbi Yosef ben Yoezer, said, it's a win-win situation for you to have a rabbi in your home. The quote is, open up your homes to rabbis. Cover yourself with the dust from their feet and drink in their words thirstily. Having them in your home, you get a front row seat at what they're teaching. And you get to worship God by serving them and celebrating them. All of that in mind, please stand with me for the reading of God's word in Luke 10 in verse 38. And Jesus and his disciples were on their way. Jesus came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked the Lord, Don't you care? that my sister has left me to do the work alone? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you were worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. These are the very words of God. Let us be strengthened. By show of hands, how many have heard this story before? Okay. I also have heard this story before. Sometimes I wonder how these stories get into the Bible. I mean, and at the same time, I sympathize with many people in this room. How do we hear this story again? I mean, we kind of get it, right? We figured it out. We've heard it for 20 years. I understand. But let's think creatively a little bit about Martha and Mary and Jesus so that maybe we can get to a place where we don't completely just have them figured out. Because I don't know about you, but Martha, in my experience, has become sort of typecast, like Kramer or uh, Screech or Say by the Bell or somebody that's just... Only this person, you, you know, she's, she's even become an allegory at some points. You know, are you a Martha or are you a Mary? And I just want to think creatively for a moment to just sort of celebrate the humanity of Martha. 
so that we can get back to a place where we actually feel like there's something going on in this story that's deep and profound and life-changing. Have you ever wondered? I mean, someone told Luke this story. Who was there? We don't know a lot about Martha. We know she has a brother and a sister, and they live in a town called Bethany. You know, we've got this story. We've got the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead, you know, and, and Mary pouring oil out on Jesus' feet, or perfume on Jesus' feet, but there's not a ton of background on these people. So we're going to just think creatively about them in hopes to humanize the situation a little bit more. I mean, who was Martha? Who told Luke this story? Who was the eyewitness that was there? Was it Mary? Was it Lazarus? Was it one of their kids? Was it Martha? Did Luke get referred to uh, Martha as a place to stay, as somebody that Jesus stayed at all the time? Was he two miles away from Jerusalem and just knocking on doors? Was Martha... Was Martha's house the kind of place where you walk in and you're just overwhelmed by that amazing smell that she's always cooking and preparing something really, really tasty? Would her children have said to her things like, I've never seen my mom without an apron on? Does she always have some flower somewhere on her cheek or on her hair or somewhere that she can't quite get off? Or were her hands strong and old and just from kneading so much dough throughout the years? Who is Martha? I'd like to imagine if Luke, what would he ask her when he saw her, you know? Uh, someone told me that you met Jesus and that you knew him. Where did you meet him? What, do you, what can you tell me about Jesus? What did she say? I've known Jesus his entire life. Maybe that's what she said. How old was she? My parents used to live in Bethlehem, and my dad was always inviting people over to his house. Maybe that's where I get my sense of hospitality from. Even if we didn't have enough room, people would be welcomed into the home. One year, Herod had this census that he sent out. He wanted to know how many people were in the country. And Mary and Joseph were friends of my parents. So they came to his home, and we had a big house, but still there was three or four families in there that night. And so we made it work. They slept near the lambs or the sheep. I remember when Jesus was born. I had helped deliver babies before. I held Mary's hand when he came out. I heard him cry. There was four of us back then. Me, I was 11. Lazarus was eight. And the twins were about two. Mary and Jacob. It was a really hard time for our family because shortly thereafter, Herod got nervous that a king had been born in Bethlehem. And so he commanded under the guise of some lie that there's too many men that he found in Bethlehem. And he said any boy under the age of two had to be put to death. He had our numbers on a piece of paper, so it was only a matter of time before the soldiers came to our house. And my mom had held Jacob so tightly in her arms that when they stabbed him, they stabbed her too. We hadn't seen Joseph and Mary for a really long time after that. We didn't know if they made it out or not. But I'll never forget the day at Passover in Jerusalem when I saw Jesus. 
And I looked at him. And all I could see was my brother Jacob. He carried that with him. He carried that with him for a lot of people. He became my brother to me. He became more than a brother to me and to my family. He was always staying with us, even when he got older and more famous. He came to someone that he could trust, house, often. He had this way of speaking into your life that was sharp and quick and full of health and love. The rebuke of a righteous man is like oil poured out onto my head. I remember this time where I had become really distracted. And Jesus spoke into my life. I was never the same. What if this was Martha? You know, I mean, if that's Martha. I just made all that up. But if, if it was Martha, I mean... Jesus speaks to people with brokenness. Jesus comes to people who are complicated, like you and me. Not just people that just have one-line interactions with him, but people that have problems and burdens and, and need to hear him speak to them. Speak to you if you let him. See, this story about Martha is more than just somebody who is a server. And somebody who's more contemplative and spiritual. And one is better than the other. This story is about somebody who's been distracted from what's really important in life. And it's easy to do. So, three things I want to share for you, to you from this story. One of them comes from just the placement in chapter 10. first thing I want to share is, is you can't be the Messiah of your life. I find this story placed in chapter 10 is kind of a grace. It's a kindness to me. Because what was the last thing that we studied last week? Jesus and the, and the lawyer, right? Jesus and the Torah scholar. And they come to a conclusion with each other that the gist of serving and following God is these two philosophical statements. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. Then Jesus explains how to be a neighbor through a parable. He does not explain how to love God. Now, I don't know that much about God, but what I do know is, one, that he loves me, and number two, that he does not allow formulas in our relationship. So lest we begin to think that just acting noble, like the Good Samaritan, that we would get favor from God every time, he puts this story right after the parable of the Good Samaritan. This isn't Martha doing what she should be doing in light of the parable of the Good Samaritan. The noble act. She's, serving, she's, she's coming and stepping in for people they don't have. She's giving until it hurts. But when your service becomes about you, when your life starts to become centered around you, and you become the Messiah of your life, you can even look the part and still have guile inside of you. You can look like you're doing the right things and still have bitterness and anger and resentment and pride in your life. Consider your life. I know that the pushback on this would be, you could tell a tree by its fruit. But I would push back on that and say, how do you tell if fruit's good without biting into it? 
We, we want to look like we, we are Christians. We want to have Instagram posts that look Christian. We want to we have all this fruit that really is just looking good. Consider if in the inside you're Martha or if in the inside you're centered and focused on God. That's what's really important. There will be many in the end that say, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't I serve Sunday school in your name? Didn't I clean the church in your name? Didn't I hold a Bible study in your name? Didn't I have all these C.S. Lewis quotes on my Facebook in your name? And he's going to say what? You looked good. It looks great, but I have no relationship with you. This is what we call works righteousness. You start to think that because you have done the noble act, and that automatically means you get favor from the Lord. Acting comes from loving the Lord, but it does not confirm that you love the Lord. And so, in the end, You could stand before the Lord and say, wasn't I a good person and didn't I do the right thing? Don't we all who are good get to have eternal life? And he will say things like, you will be living somewhere forever. But in order to live with God forever, you must love God. You must not be the Messiah. You must love the Messiah, Jesus. So have you become distracted from this? And become the center of your service. And become the center of all of your nobility and your noble actions. Are you trying to win the affection of the Lord? Do you love God anymore? Or have you become distracted? Number two, distractions come in all shapes and sizes. It's not what is the distraction. It's when are you being distracted? Martha, in verse 40, was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. I just want to make a point about chronology of distractions. <laughs> Say, if you are a new Christian or somebody that's young in the faith, a way that you can be distracted from your, relig- from your relationship with Jesus, a way that you can be distracted from having a life centered around Jesus is through things that will just come up. And be put before you. And what will happen is your relationship with Jesus over the years will look kind of like this. And you'll never grow. It's been a few years now and you don't know any more of the Bible. You don't know any more about Jesus and you're just a Christian. Maybe you have to consider the amount of distractions that are in your life. Maybe today's a day where you start to say, I'm going to passionately start pursuing the Lord through his word, through prayer, and through seeking him. On my 21st birthday, Greg Dempster took me out to dinner, and he said to me, Dan, there will always be something in the way of you pursuing the Lord. When you're 21, when you're 31, when you're 51, there will be something to say, uh, tomorrow I will serve the Lord. Whether it be getting married, whether it be needing more sleep, whether it be needing to go to bed earlier or sleeping later, or whether it be a new series on Netflix, whether it be getting, having a baby, there will always be something that says, me first, God second. And if you want to grow in your relationship with the Lord, you have to cut out the distractions. And you have to say, I'm going to passionately pursue you and say yes to you day in, day out, and seek you.
seek you through your words, seek you through sitting before you and pasturing myself saying, I want more of you and less of the world. How long will it be that you allow Facebook to distract you or you allow your work and job and amount of hours that you put in to distract you from saying yes to what really matters? It's easy to get distracted. Or how about someone that's more seasoned in the faith? Someone that's been a Christian for a really long time. Someone that's been serving at church for a really long time. This is also easy to lose track of what's really important in life. I've seen people, I mean, we call it burnout. You get burnt out. Oftentimes, it's, it's because you're doing things that look Christian or look like it's uh, for the Lord. And so when it comes to actually pursuing Jesus, you kind of associate those two together. And you say, the last thing I want to do in the morning is what I do at church or what I do with the Christian community. Let me do something else. What's going on is, is you are not getting filled in the way that you need to be filled and you're feeling depleted. You've been giving too much and not getting enough from the Lord. Be careful of this because you will then start to become burnt out and bitter and have nothing else to give. You'll judge people that are coming to you for help and you are below your capacity. Below or above your capacity? I can't. You're over your head. This is a real problem. The next thing that happens after the distractions come in is bitterness. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? This comes to a point when you're being distracted from your relationship with the Lord and you've become so distant from him, you don't even know what he cares about anymore. Guard your heart and, and, and consider, are you at a point in life where you honestly believe that you care about something more than the Lord cares about it? You've been serving at, uh, you've been serving the unborn child for so long. You've been serving children for so long. You've been advocating for your family for so long. And, and, and you've pushed God and pushed Jesus away. You haven't pursued him. And so it starts to become a feeling like you have the weight on your shoulders. Lord, don't you care about my family? Don't you see me right now? Don't you care about these people? Don't you care about this nation or these people? Is it just me? Has, has Jesus become that distant that you believe you care more about something than he does? Send to me Mary. Who's your Mary? Martha has the greatest help that the hu human race has ever seen standing before her. And she says, please give me Mary. Have you been asking Jesus for all these other things that you think will fix it? Mary will fix it. This pain, this hole that I feel, it'll fix it. A new boss would fix this feeling that I have. A new car would fix this need that I have. Lord, don't you care? Do you care about the, the, my spiritual wealth? A new, ministry, a new ministry would fix this. A new uh, pastor would fix this. So this would fix it. How, where do you draw the line? Lord, don't you care about how unhappy I am in my marriage? A new spouse would fix it. 
What if what you need is Jesus? When's the last time you just looked up and said, help me fix this? I need you right now to fill me up. I'm depleted. I'm completely bankrupt. I need you in this area. I need you in every area. Maybe you don't need Mary. Maybe you need Jesus. He can fix it. Maybe you don't need somebody that never promised to be your fix. Maybe you need somebody who says, the thief has come to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come so that you can actually have life and life to the full. Come to me, hearts and people that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Me, I'll give it to you. He promises to give you the sustenance that you need. And after that, you will then be able to serve and be empowered and have the ability to be able to uh, walk with people through thick and thin and be Martha and have it be in a healthy place. Martha, Martha, you have been worried and anxious about many things, but only one thing is needed. Are there any moms or... Worker, hard workers in the room that have been hurt by this verse. I just want to pause for a minute and say, this verse is not saying that if you're a hard worker, then you are less of a person or less of a spiritual person. Or if you are occupied with changing diapers, it's less of a spiritual thing than going into a prayer room. I think Jesus is hitting the same point through the story. One thing should be your top priority, and you have become worried about all these other things. But if you were to worry about this one thing that's necessary, all these other unnecessary things can fall into place. If you have removed loving the Lord from the top shelf and put loving your neighbor on the top shelf, that has become an unnecessary thing. You've not worried about the necessary thing. Mary isn't more spiritual. She's just a great example of somebody that's focused on their relationship with the Lord. Somebody that just says, I don't see anything else right now. I want to I grow. I want to humble myself before you. Teach me. You can do that when you change diapers. You can do that when you're at work. You can do that in every area of life. You just have to prioritize your relationship with Jesus. Or have you become worried about secondary things? Any questions? The thought that I have to kind of end our time this morning is not every time you see, it's very seldom you see doubling of names. Martha, Martha. Whoever told Luke this story apparently thought it was significant enough to say, he said, Martha, Martha. Don't write that down. Forget, don't forget. He said, Martha, Martha. (laughs) Why did he do that? That's the question I'm asking. Why did he say that? It's not very many times in the Bible when you see doubling of something. Uh, Remember Saul on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The way I want to end this morning is just to think about this for a minute and see if we can join in 
the response that I see in the Bible. In Martha's Bible, the, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament is what we call it, there's like four or five times when this actually happens. And every time that God doubles a name, two things happen. They respond in the same exact way. And then their life is drastically changed. They respond in the same way, and then their life is completely gone into a different direction. What are they? Well, an old man on Mount Moriah is feeling like he's at a crossroads. (laughs) He's got a son on the altar and a knife raised in the air. And if he was to choose this thing... His life would be uh, drastically different in this direction. And if this were to happen, his life would be totally different. And he's in that moment. And he hears from the heavens, Abraham, Abraham. With the knife held high, which he responds with, here I am. I could see this going one of two ways. Just tell me which one to do. I'm fully present in this moment right now. I fully know the gravity of it. Just tell me which one. Here I am. And the Lord says, Abraham, I'm so happy that you would do that for me. But I do not want you to provide the lamb. I'm going to provide the lamb. And that becomes a theme for the Hebrew family for ages. His life is totally different. Next person, Jacob I don't know, Lord, should I go to Egypt? This is probably a bad decision because every time we go to Egypt, we get in trouble. (laughs) Jacob, Jacob, what does he say? Here I am. Don't worry about going down to Egypt. I'll be with you. It'll be okay. You can see this going one of two ways, but I'm going to follow this. And then his life is totally different. An old jaded shepherd, an old man doing the job of a child, He's out in the wilderness of uh, the Sinai Peninsula. He knows that he has seen it all. And then one day he comes by this bush that is burning and he's just staring at it. (laughs) I thought I'd seen everything and now I know that this desert is really hot. And he's looking at it and out from the bush, God speaks. Moses, Moses. And what does he say? Here I am. And God says, that's all I need. Your life direction is going to totally change. You could continue on this path, but now that you said that you're fully present and willing, I'm going to send you down this path, and everything's going to be different from here on out. My favorite, the little boy in the tabernacle named Samuel. Three times the Lord says, Samuel, Samuel. Every time he responds with, here I am. Two times he actually went to his foster dad, Eli, and thought that it was him calling him. The last time, he says, here I am in a different way. Samuel, Samuel, speak for your servant is listening. Everything that I'm about to do through you, Samuel, Samuel, is going to make the ears of people tingle all throughout Israel. Your life is totally going to be different. I have no problem lining up Martha in this group of people. I have no problem thinking that Martha, Martha might have elicited some of these same stories from her mind. What I really like about the story is is Luke doesn't write the ending. 
You'll notice as you see uh, gaps all throughout the book of Luke that dramatically leave you wondering what happened. Wouldn't it be appropriate for Martha in this moment to say, here I am. To humble herself before the Lord like her sister and say, I'm just here I am, Lord, speak for your servant is listening. So wouldn't it be great this morning if you could respond in a similar way? Some of us are at a crossroads and at a, at a, at a fork in the road this morning. And this time I'll ask Greg to come back up with the band. We've got several different options for you to respond this morning. Bowls of water are here on the stage. If you want to wipe the slate clean and, and symbolize, wash your hands and say, I have, I have abandoned my relationship with Jesus for far too long and tried to fill my heart and my mind with things that are sinful, things that cannot fill me. And today's a day where I say, here I am. All I want is Jesus. Today's a day where your life goes in a different direction. Maybe some of you today just need to kneel. You never have before. You never have actually made that statement like Mary and said, I'm going to become less right now and small so that you can become more and big. I'm going to physically represent the state of my heart and say, I want to be humble. I've been too proud. I want to kneel before you and say, Lord, speak, for your servant is listening. Have you become the center of your life? Has your media, your social media, made you into the center of your being, uh, your existence? You are the center of this universe. Be careful, because when you pull the sun out of the solar system, you will spiral out of control. God needs to be at the center of your life, in your works, in your service. Have you become numb and angry towards God and burn out? Are you accusing him of wrongdoing? Or has he really just become so far from you? You don't know who he is anymore. If you become angry with your sister or your brother and you've judged them because they're in a different place than you, or have you begged God for something to fix you without first asking for him to come and fill you? I'm just going to simply say, crossroads, crossroads. And if you choose to respond with here am I, make that commitment before the Lord. Crossroads, crossroads.